So first, to understand this first reading, we've got to go on a bit of a journey. Go back 3,000 years. So just around 1,000 BC, King Saul is the first ever king of the kingdom of Israel. And he's been mildly successful. But there's this young guy by the name of David who has started to win a bit of a claim as this up-and-coming military strategist. He's winning a lot of battles. He's actually Saul's right-hand man. Like He's like the most faithful servant of Saul. He's even married to his daughter. And so you really couldn't ask for a better servant. But Saul's not too happy with David. Saul is a very interesting character, and you've got to understand this to understand where this reading goes to. Saul starts off pretty well. He's just an average guy. But he starts to unravel a bit mentally. And as you read the story in the first book of Samuel, you kind of get the impression that he's actually not very mentally stable at all. Because some days he's celebrating David, saying, you're the best, you know, my kingdom is built on you. And other days he's trying to kill him. Because he's jealous. He's afraid that if David becomes too popular, everyone's going to want him to become the king and he's going to take over the throne. So that basically sets the scene for where we get to tonight in this reading. Because as things have turned out, they've turned out pretty badly. Saul has set out to kill David, his faithful servant. David's done nothing wrong. If anything, David has done everything right, probably a little bit too right. He's been too successful. And so Saul sets out with 3,000 heavily armed men with one intention of killing his best servant, David. Now David hears about this while he's out in the field with his, with his soldiers. And so they're loyal to him and they, they say, right, we're going to protect you. But you've got this chase happening through the wilds of Israel. But what you get here is a very different scenario to what any of us would have done. Because I'd imagine if if any of us were being hunted down by 3,000 soldiers, by this person that we'd serve faithfully, we'd probably be a little bit angry about that. But David is a little bit different. Now, basically what happens, David is hiding he knows that this army is coming down to get him. And so he climbs into this deep cave with his small band of men that are with him. And they're just hiding, waiting for Saul and his army to pass by. But as things happen, Saul needs a private place to go to the toilet without 3,000 soldiers looking at him. So he wanders into the same cave, looking for a nice, quiet place to relieve himself. And you end up with this situation where David now has his arch enemy, sitting right in front of him in the darkness. And the other soldiers who serve David say to him, well, basically pass him a knife and say, this is your chance. You know, he's unjustly pursuing you. You could stab him in the back, no one would ever know. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm going to raise my hand against him. One injustice doesn't deserve another. 
But instead what he does is he very carefully sneaks up behind him and cuts off the edge of his coat while he's doing his business. Saul gets up and leaves. Once he's a little bit distant away, David then emerges from the cave cave and calls out and says, Saul, have a look at your coat. And he sees this chunk missing. And then he holds up and says, see this? I could have killed you, but I didn't. Now tell me, why are you persecuting me? What have I done against you? Why are you hunting me down? And Saul basically says, I'm I'm not trying to kill you. Of course not. These soldiers are just out for some exercise. (laughs) But very soon afterwards, we then get to the story that that we get tonight, which is the second time this happens. Because once again, Saul is still relentless trying to kill him. And and you'd think, okay, I gave you one chance, but the second time, David's not going to be quite as merciful. But as we hear in this reading, David comes across them and the whole of the army, 3,000 men are asleep in this deep slumber. All the guards and all the sentries have fallen asleep as well. And David walks right into the camp, right up next to the king, and there he's got his huge spear stabbed into the ground next to him. And as we hear, one of David's men says, come on, let me do it. If you, if you don't want to do it, let me stab him. And it'll all be over. And once again, David says no. Instead, he picks up the spear, picks up the water jug next to him, disappears, waits till sunrise. And the same thing, from a safe distance, he calls out and says, Saul, where's your spear? Oh, here it is. You notice you're still alive? That's because of my mercy towards you. Now, it's an amazing thing. And as I say, I can't imagine I would do that if I was in that situation. I don't know whether any of you would. Because I think most people, once again, I I don't know you and how you operate, but I think most people are pretty quick to judge. Most people are pretty quick to get offended. You know, someone doesn't smile at you as they walk down the corridor and straight away you're like, I'm going to kill them. (laughs) Or they're off my Christmas card list. That's it. No more friends. There's something in the human heart where we are, we're almost like wounded animals sometimes. You know, we're, we have been hurt and we're determined to make sure we never get hurt again. And even if that means making a preemptive strike to make sure that I hurt them before they hurt me, that's the way the world works. That's the story of human history. You know, so when you get a story like this of someone acting completely differently, not once but twice. That becomes an epic story. And it it becomes a story which I think we need to sit back and say, what is different? In this gospel, Jesus says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, be good to those who persecute you. If someone takes your coat, chase after them and give them your shirt as well. Anyone here ever done that? Once again, it's not normal human behaviour. If someone asked you to do that, you would think they would have gone crazy. There's a story about St. Francis of Assisi where in one of their their houses, some thieves broke in and beat up a few of the, the, the brothers and stole a bunch of stuff. 
And so they went running to St. Francis, St. Francis, look at what they did to us. And he said, well, what are you waiting for? And he wondered, what do you mean? Give them everything else. Go chase after them. Take your, take your shirt off. And they're like, have you gone mad? He said, no, no, this is what Jesus said. Go and do it. And so they, they did. They, by obedience, they didn't really want to. But they went and picked up everything else in the kitchen and ran down the road and said, hey, you forgot some stuff. And the story's told that the thieves ended up converting and becoming Franciscans. But it's, it's one of those things, you know, like, it's one of, one of the great spiritual writers said that the, the gospel is one of the great untried teachings ever. You know, it's, it's the fact that people have read the scriptures and said, yeah, it's a nice idea, but we've never tried to actually live it. And it's kind of that question of what would happen if we actually did? You know, what would happen if we actually did bless those who cursed us? What would happen if we actually did chase after those who stole things from us and actually want to give them more? How would that change people? Now, as I say, it's complete madness. And everything in us fights against that reality. As much as we want to like the idea, there is this deep, profound fear inside of us. We are afraid of being hurt. Fundamentally, that's why we don't love. Love is the most terrifying thing in the world. Like, like real love. Not just like, oh, you're great, I like you. Like real vulnerability, real sacrificial love is utterly terrifying because it is the biggest risk you could ever take. Because you don't know how the other person is going to respond. You are not in control when you are genuinely loving someone else. If you are in control, you're probably not loving them. You're probably manipulating them. Or it's some sort of social contract you've entered into where I give you this and you give me that. But real genuine love is jumping off a cliff. Real genuine love is grace. That's the word we use. It's where I love without counting the cost. It's when I love when you don't deserve it. I love even when there's no guarantee that you're going to change. But I'm still going to love regardless. Now for us to get to that point, there's really two things we need to do. The first thing is we need to stop fighting. The reason why we're so afraid is because inside our heads there is a constant war being played out. Now you're probably not conscious of it because it's always there in the background. And it's basically this, this constant battle in your emotions which is convincing you to never trust, to never risk, to never jump off that cliff and, and risk it all. Because every time you've been hurt... Basically, it hurts. And every time you then think about it, it hurts more. And you think about it again, and it hurts more. And the more you think about it, it compounds bigger and bigger. Yes, St. John of the Cross talks about how when we've been hurt, our emotions become the playground of the devil. 
as the term he uses. I'm sure you've experienced this sometime where someone, maybe someone cuts you off in traffic or someone doesn't smile at you when you walk down the corridor. At the time, it didn't bother you at all. You're like, oh, okay, whatever. But then later that evening, you go home and you think about it. You're like, oh, that makes me angry. And then the next morning, you think about it again. You're like, I'm really angry. And the more you think about it, the emotion just builds and builds and builds until you're just entering into this rage of like paranoia or making vendettas against them. That's kind of the way the human heart works. Now, like I say, we need to stop the battle. If you're ever going to get to a point where you can genuinely love someone, you need to realise that Jesus is now in charge of that battle, not you. There needs to be some point where you hand it over and you say, it's not my problem anymore. I can let go of all of these battles from the past. Because this is what we do. We are carrying the weight of years of conflict, years of broken trust, years of hurt. And we have built up these defensive walls so high that we will never risk really loving ever again. Our love now is very scripted. It becomes a performance. I'm only going to do this much because it's safe. And so I think for us as Christians, that's the first thing we need to do. We need to hand it over to the cross and say, that's your problem now, Jesus. But the second thing is probably the most important. You cannot give this grace unless you have received it. Unless you have consciously received an undeserved love, you cannot give an undeserved love. You need to get to the point where you start to realise I'm not actually worthy of the love these people are giving me. It's pure gift. It's pure mercy. And, and what that does to you will change you. It will transform you to the point where you can now be compassionate, be understanding. Probably the best example of this happened 2,000 years after this first reading. Where another man called Saul, who was another very angry man, was also heading out, not quite with 3,000 men, but maybe a small private army, intending to kill some people. And as he was going on his way to Damascus, a man appeared to him, very similar to the way that David appeared to King Saul. And this man stood before him and said, Why are you persecuting me? Why are you hunting me down? What have I done to you? Now that person was Jesus Christ. In a vision, Saul saw the risen Christ standing before him with his wounds from the crucifixion. And Jesus was basically saying, Saul, when, when you are killing those Christians, you're killing me. Why are you hunting me? What have I done against you? And for Saul, this was the moment when it, the lights came on. He suddenly realised who he was. He suddenly realised the depths of his own 
horridness. But it wasn't something depressing. It wasn't that Paul, that the Saul then sank down into this, this self-pitying, anxious depression. But rather, he realised the mystery of grace. He realised that Jesus was standing before him with absolute mercy. Not just forgiving him, but giving him a job. Saying, Saul, I'm going to give you the job to now go and preach this mystery of grace to the ends of the earth. You're forgiven, get over it, now get up and start working. Now, coming out of that experience, Saul, who we now know as St. Paul, goes on to love his enemies. He, he then goes from being the hunter to being the hunted. He now has people chasing after him, trying to execute him. And every moment, he loves them. Every time they try to kill him, he turns around and blesses them. He tries to preach the gospel of mercy to them. He just keeps going. Even to the point where, in the letter to the Romans, in chapter 9, he says, I would be prepared not just to die for them, but to actually give up my salvation for them. I would be prepared to spend the rest of my eternity in hell if it meant that my enemies could go to heaven. That is loving your enemies. That's huge. I could not say that. I don't know if anyone here could. But to understand, the reason why he could say that was not because he was trying hard to be a good Christian. The reason he could say that was because he had received that grace. It was a living, tangible thing, not just something that someone had preached to him, not just something he'd read in a book. He'd actually come to a point of encountering mercy. For us here, we need to encounter that. Now, if you can forgive me for saying this, Christians have a bad reputation when it comes to this. Christians have a reputation in the world of looking nice, but actually bitching about each other all the time. Church communities have a reputation of being hotbeds of gossip and slander and backbiting. And I think what that says is that as a church, we have not actually encountered grace. We've heard about it. We preach about it. But we haven't actually got to that point that that, that Paul got to of realising... I don't deserve this. Because very often we sit here feeling really self-righteous, thinking, yeah, I deserve heaven. I'm amazing. I've never murdered anybody. As though that's the measurement of all morality. We need to come to a point where we realise this is gift. It is pure gift. My faith is gift. The very fact that I'm alive is gift. All of it is mercy. And how am I now going to live differently because of that? How does that knowledge of grace change my heart? How does that compel me to stop this war that goes on inside my emotions so that I can now go out with a healed heart? You know, if Paul can go from being a bloodthirsty murderer to being someone who just goes and blesses and restores and heals... 
What sort of work can happen in us if we allow the cross to become a living thing? If we can allow this message of mercy to actually transform us? So I think simply as we come into this Eucharist, I want you to hold that image of King David, well, before he became king. But hold that image of of David standing up before Saul, saying, what have I done to you? Why are you persecuting me? And then hold up that image of Jesus standing before Saul, saying the same thing. Why are you persecuting me? Look at my mercy. Look at the love I pour out to you. Why do you go after all these other things when I'm loving you this much? Why do you find me so boring when I love you this much? Whatever it is in your life, whatever it is that stops you from actually taking this grace and this mercy seriously, for us to hear Jesus say those words to us so that we can actually encounter and be transformed.